Good evening. We want to welcome you once again to the midweek service. Uh, we have a few out tonight for various reasons, and uh, we certainly miss them, but we're glad that you're here. And as Brother Nathan said, I'm excited to start this study of the book of James. Uh, just to give you a little bit of a preview, uh, this will we'll go verse by verse throughout this study of James, but it's, it's going to be sort of like half-chapter studies as the book of James is more thematic than some of the, the letters and epistles and, and uh, books that we've been going through. And so tonight we're going to talk about the testing of our faith and enduring temptation, and that will take up the first 17 verses of the chapter. And then uh, after that, we'll finish chapter 1 next time uh, with things regarding submissiveness and meekness and, and how when we submit and uh, follow and obey God's word, how that blesses us. Uh, after that, we'll talk about the sin of partiality and discrimination. That's a huge section of James's letter. Uh, and then talk about an active and living faith. And then talk about the power of the tongue. And, and also James's warning to us about not having too many teachers and how not everybody needs to be a teacher because the tongue is such a powerful thing and, and by many things, he says, we offend. Uh, then he talks about peace and the wisdom that's from above and that's, that's also from the earth. And we're going to talk about that just a little bit tonight. And then he finishes his book out uh, by talking about things concerning more, our mortality and also endurance. And so we're going to start with endurance, and we're going to end with endurance in the book of James. And uh, so we'll start tonight with the idea of endurance. Just a few notes as we start the book of James. James starts out his letter, similar to Paul, what Paul's letters start out with, with his name, and then a description of who he identifies himself as. And you notice, he says, James, a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great way to identify yourself, your purpose, by saying, I am bound to serve God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he mentions to the 12 tribes, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. I want to start with James. Who is James? And, and, I, and I wish I could give you a definitive answer to this, because there's, there's a lot of varying opinions. And and some of those opinions are actually extremely strong opinions, but I will tell you that even looking at historical evidence and biblical evidence, all of that evidence that would lead a person to say, well, it's definitely this James is really circumstantial evidence. Um, but the ideas about who James is are that this could be James, the son of Zebedee and the brother of John. Now, uh, I don't necessarily think that was, and I'll, I'll explain that in just a moment. Uh, another one that people think may have written the book of James is James, the son of Alphaeus, or the son of Cleopas, and those are the same men, Alphaeus and Cleopas. They're different renderings of the same name. Uh, he was one of the 12 apostles, and also another possibility is that this was written by James, the brother, the physical brother of Jesus. Now, Many people, a lot of scholars, believe that these two men right here were the exact same person. They think this was the same person. And there's some reasons for that, which we don't have time to go into. Uh, but again, some of that is, is, is conjecture. Uh, and some of the evidence is, is somewhat strong, but not definite in that these are the same men. Now, I say all that to say this. I'm not going to give you a definitive answer on, on whether I think that it is James, the son of Alphaeus, or the brother of Jesus, or that those are the same person, but rather, I, I think that 
Probably it's not James, the son of Zebedee, because he was killed earlier uh, than this book has been dated to been written. And so we see that in Acts 12. We notice from our Acts study that Herod had killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And that's James, the son of Zebedee. Now just later, in, a little later in the chapter, another James is mentioned here in verse 17. After Peter had escaped prison, it says, But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Obviously, he's not talking about James, the son of Zebedee, because Peter was aware that James had been killed. Now, which James is this? I don't know exactly. It could have been James the Less, that is James uh, the son of Alphaeus, or it could have been James the Lord's brother. Now here's what I do know. This James was a prominent New Testament character. And by prominent, I mean he was a very influential person. He was very well known among God's people. And that's what I want us to notice is I believe that the person who wrote the book of James is most likely this James that's mentioned several times in the book of Acts. Now whether that's of, of Alphaeus or the Lord's brother, I'm not going to necessarily try to pin that down. Other than this, he was a very influential and well-known person within the kingdom. Notice Acts 15 and 13. And after they had become silent, James answered and said, Men and brethren, listen to me. Now there was dissension among the brethren at Antioch. And, it, and that dissension happened over the law of Moses. And you might remember, they got all the elders from Jerusalem together to, to make a decision. What are we going to tell these people? What are we going to tell these Gentiles? What are we going to bind on them? And there were four really prominent characters that spoke up. There was Peter, and then there was Paul and Barnabas, and then James. And James had a very strong voice. And people listened to him because, again, he was a man of God. He was very influential and he was a bondservant of Jesus Christ. So he carried a lot of influence. In Galatians 2, when we see where Paul had confronted Peter in Antioch, I want you to notice how, this, how he defines the men that Peter uh, had actually sided with in his hypocrisy. Galatians 2 and 11, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were the circumcision. Now this is an interesting way to describe these brethren because these are brethren from Jerusalem. But how does he describe them? Those that came from James. Why? Because again, James is a prominent person. He's a pillar in the church. And he sent these men there for a purpose. And so again, James is not some obscure person who just shows up all of a sudden and writes an epistle. James is a prominent, well-known disciple of Jesus Christ. And how do we know that this James who wrote the letter carried a great weight of influence? Well, let's look at verse 1 once again. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. This is not a, a, a epistle that's written to a church or a person or a region like Galatia. Uh, Galatia was not written to a church at Galatia, but the churches at Galatia, which was a region. But James writes a general epistle, much like Peter, and also like Jude, this is a general epistle, but it has an intended audience. And that intended audience are the Jewish Christians, that's what the 12 tribes is referring to here, that are scattered abroad. That is, they're not residing in Jerusalem, but they're scattered around in different regions and living in these Gentile nations. Well, if you don't have the type of influence and you're not known, sending a letter out broadly to a lot of different regions is kind of pointless. But they knew who James was. Why? Because James was a prominent person 
within the kingdom. So how does James start his letter? Man, we really just get heavy right at the start. I mean, the first thing that he admonishes is, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That's strong, isn't it? A strong way to start a letter. He just gets right down to life's not fair. You're going to be tested. You're going to have tribulation in your life, and you need to count it as joy. And, you know, Brother John talked about joy. And, and I want us to notice that when he talks about joy here, and he talks about trials, those are usually not two things that really are married to one another, if you will. I know, I know when I'm going through some type of trial, something that's uncomfortable, something that's painful, I don't feel joyful about it. So what does he say? Count it as joy. He doesn't say, it's a joyous thing to fall into temptation. He said, no, you need to count it as joy. Well, what does he mean, count it? He means you need to esteem it consider it as joy. Like, just like when we read in Philippians chapter 3 that Paul says, all those things that were gained to me, I have counted them as dung. They weren't dung. He counted them as such, even though they were valuable to him. He counted or esteemed them as not valuable. And that's what he says to do with various trials, to count it as joy. Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. So these two things are synonymous Falling into various trials is synonymous with the testing of our faith. Has your faith been tested? You know, one of the things that we enjoy here in America is that we live in a country that is free from government persecution. Isn't that a great blessing that we have here in America? We can come here and we can have church. We don't worry about the police busting through the door. We don't worry about somebody coming and shutting us down. That may change. That may change. I think in my kids' lifetime, they're going to see persecution here. We may see it in my lifetime. Things may change. They probably will. The way that our nation is headed, we could experience some persecutions. That blessing that we enjoy may be taken away from us. What are we going to do? Well, we're certainly not going to rejoice about persecution, are we? Is that what he's telling them to do here? Rejoice. That life is hard. No? So what is this all about? Well, let's go over to 1 Peter for a moment. Because 1 Peter 1, 6-9 says very similarly the same thing that James says with a little bit more, I guess, description or explanation. He says, in this you greatly rejoice. Now let's stop for a minute. The in this is what he just mentioned. And Brother John talked about this as well. That we have an inheritance Eternal in the heavens, incorruptible, that's reserved for us, right? That's what he's saying in this. The inheritance that's awaiting you, rejoice about that. Though now, for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, here's the same words, various trials. And what does he say? You've been made happy by them? No, he says you've been grieved by it. It's, it's caused you distress in your life. But notice this, he says that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The testing of your faith, the various trials that we all go through, he says is more valuable, that's what the word precious means, more valuable than gold. How valuable is gold? How valuable is a pound of gold? I don't, I don't know the monetary wealth. 
thousands and thousands of dollars. Gold is a precious metal. It's a valuable metal. He said, the testing of your faith, various trials, is more valuable than gold. Do you believe that? You know how we count it joy when we go through testing times, trying times? Well, we'll never do that until we recognize the value of that testing. And here's why it's, here's why it's valuable. Because it leads us to a place of praise and honor and glory of God. It leads us toward strength. It leads us to become who God designed us to be. And I, I, you, maybe you're just like me. Maybe you think, well, I want to grow some other way. But that's not how it works. We don't grow sitting on a comfortable, fluffy couch eating fat food. That's not how we grow. Not spiritually. How do we grow? Through the cross. Through the carrying of the cross, we grow. Notice Peter, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he's talking about the messenger of Satan that was sent to buffet him, that gave him this thorn in the flesh. Whatever it was, it was distressing him. He was grieved by this trial that he was having to endure. And he said, God, remove the trial. Take away the hardship. I don't want to feel this way anymore. And he asked God three times, and God says, The blessings that I've already given you are sufficient. My grace is sufficient, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, Paul says, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now think about this phrase right here, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You know, people talk about this all the time. I wish that the power of Christ would work in my life. Careful. Because you know how the power of Christ worked in his life? Through his hardship. Through the difficulty that he was going through. And he said, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. Do you think he just all of a sudden became sadistic where he enjoyed pain? No. He's saying, I'm counting it joy that I'm going through this trial in reproaches, in needs, in persecution, in distresses for Christ's sake. Because when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul is saying, if, if what it takes for me to be strong, if, 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 if it's what it takes for me to be faithful and loyal and to learn to be more like Christ, is to hurt and to suffer, to bring on the hurt and the suffering. Because that's my goal. My goal is not to live a life of comfort. My life is not to live a life of happiness. My goal is to live a life of holiness. And if this is what it takes for me to be made holy, then I welcome it. In Philippians chapter 4, he says, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. You ever prayed for God to help you be content? Help me to be content. Help me to be satisfied with the things that I already had. How do you learn contentment? Because that's what Paul says. He says, I've learned to be content. Well, how did he learn to be content? He said, I know how to be abased. Well, how did he know that? Because he'd been abased. He said, I know how to abound. How did he know that? Because there were times where he had an abundance. He said, everywhere and in all things I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We all know this, don't we? How do you teach your kids contentment? Well, I'll tell you how not to teach them contentment. By always saying yes. If you give them everything they always ask for, do they ever learn contentment? No. 
They never learn contentment. They don't know how to be a base. And so when real life happens, they're out on their own, and all of a sudden they don't have all of the niceties and luxuries that mom and dad have provided. They're grown, and they can't handle it. Why? Because they've never learned how to be a base. How do you learn to be a base? By suffering, by doing without. And here's, here's what I find interesting. Verse 13, we see this on football helmets, on tennis shoes, and, and, you know, I'm always happy when I see Scripture on anything. But, but let's be real. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not about victory in some secular way. It's not about I can win this football game through the power of Christ. It's I can overcome the trials of life through Christ who strengthens me. And how is it that Christ strengthened Paul? Was this some mystical thing where Paul said, strengthen me, and God went, here you go. You know what Paul said? I'll take pleasure in my infirmities because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Sometimes the way God strengthens us is through the hardship. I'm not saying that's the only way he strengthens us. I believe that Paul was able to be content because he knew heaven was his home, going back to 1 Peter chapter 1, because he had an inheritance reserved in the heavens. But God strengthens us through these difficulties. And so James chapter 1, going back to James chapter 1 verse 4, here's what James says. Let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Let patience have its perfect work. What does that mean? He means let patience do its job to complete us, to make us whole, to make us strong. We have to allow patience to work. And I'm not going to dive into that too much because I know Brother Nathan's going to be talking about patience soon. But I want you to really think about that. Allow patience to work in your life. Well, you, you know, if, if Paul would have got what he wanted when he said, take it away, take it away, and not all that had been removed, well, he'd have been felt a lot better about things, wouldn't he? He'd have been comfortable. But patience wouldn't have done anything for him. And so various trials, think about that, various trials. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means there's a lot of different kind of trials in life. There's a lot of different kinds of testing. We're not always, our faith isn't always going to be tested in the same way. Maybe it's persecution, maybe it's poverty, maybe it's sickness, or maybe it's like Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 13 where he said, examine yourselves, which is actually the exact same word that's translated trial or testing. Examine yourselves. There's a lot of ways that we uh, our faith is tested. So notice that he points out that let patience have its perfect worth, that you may be perfect complete, lacking nothing. And then the next phrase starts with this, if anyone lacks. So here's something that someone might lack. And here's what he says, if you lack wisdom. Who in here lacks wisdom? <laughs> we all lack wisdom, right? There's obviously varying levels of wisdom in this room, but everybody needs more wisdom. And so he says, if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. So here's something that maybe we, can, maybe we might overlook at times. This isn't just about asking for wisdom, but he says God is the source of wisdom. Where does wisdom come from? Well, sometimes we think, well, wisdom comes through experience. Well, it can come through experience. You know, we teach our kids, don't touch that, it's hot, don't touch that, it's hot, but... Sometimes they have to burn their hand and they touch something that's hot and then they go, oh, that's hot. Yeah, I just told you that's hot. 
But they had to go through that to learn for themselves it's hot. And then they learn not to touch it again. Well, well, sometimes good things are the same way. Maybe we do something, we step out in service for God, and, and we fall on our face, and we say, well, that hurt. And I'm never doing that again. Well, is that wisdom? It's similar, right? But experience is not always a good barometer for what is right, what is true, and what is wise. So if you lack wisdom in life, well, where do you seek that wisdom? Are you going to go buy a book? Are you going to go, I'm not knocking that, but where does wisdom come from? It comes from God. And he says, ask God. And God gives liberally, generously. That's what that means. And without reproach. You say, well, that sounds strange, without reproach. Well, well, that just means this. It means that when we come to God and we ask Him for wisdom, He doesn't respond to us in a harsh way or repel us. But what does He do? He gives us wisdom. How often do we ask God for wisdom? You know, James talks about wisdom a little later, and we're not going to dive into this too much because we're going to get into it in a few weeks. But, but I just want to notice that there's two types of wisdom that James talks about here in this letter. He talks about wisdom that does not send from above, or descend rather from above. You can't ascend from above. And then wisdom that is from above. So there's two types of wisdom here. Well, well what does descend mean? It means come down. Come down from above. And, and if you go back to James chapter 1, here's a verse that we talk about a lot, right? James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down. What, what, what is one of the gifts that God uh, gives to us that descends down from above? Wisdom. There's wisdom that descends from above. It's a heavenly wisdom, if you will. And I know every good gift, every perfect gift comes from God. But in this context, what is he talking about? There are things that come from God. And those things are good and they're perfect and they're completing in our life. And they descend down. And all those things that are good and perfect, they come from God. And God, he says, there's no variation or shadow of turning. He's consistent. Going back to James 3 for just a minute, as you notice, if you're, if you're wondering, maybe, well, ask God for wisdom, when do I know that God gives me wisdom? I think that's an important question to ask because I think sometimes people say, well, I prayed about that, and here's what God told me. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't think God told you that. Well, how do you know? How do you know God didn't tell you that? Because a lot of times people pray for something, but just as James will talk about later, sometimes we pray for things and we ask. You notice, he says, envy and self-seeking, where those things exist, there's confusion in every evil work. And he said, those are not according to the wisdom that's from above. This wisdom does not descend from above. It's earthly, sensual, it is demonic. It's evil. But notice the wisdom that is from above is purer than peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You know how we know when wisdom is from above and when it's not? When it's a good and perfect gift that descends down from God? Because wisdom has fruit. It has fruit. It's pure. It's peaceable. It's gentle. It's willing to yield. What is willing to yield? It means that I'm willing to submit to someone else. It's full of mercy and good fruits. It's, it's not partial, which he talks about in chapter 2. It's without hypocrisy. A lot of these things are things he addresses throughout the letter. So there's a wisdom that we ask of from God. But where does wisdom come from? Can, can you just, just like patience, can you just pray for wisdom? And God gives you wisdom. 
Yeah. But do we seek wisdom? Do we pursue after wisdom? Where are we looking for? Do you know God gave Solomon wisdom and he wrote two books that we call the books of wisdom? Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. God's given you wisdom already to look at. He's given us wisdom that we can pursue and we can learn from. Do you think that the gift of God is going to be any different, any di that it's going to contradict or be contrary to the wisdom he's given us already? No. But how much do we pray for wisdom? You say, well, you sound like you're doubting. Well, I'm, I'm kind of setting this up for a moment because I want to really think about this. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally, and without reproach, and it will be given. And let him ask in faith with no doubting. That's hard to do sometimes, isn't it? You say, well, you know, I'm going to pray for this, but I don't, I don't really know if God will give me that. You know, some people believe God doesn't even answer prayer nowadays. They say, well, you know, God used to do that. He, you know, he, he just wants us to do that so we can talk to him and trust in him. I think that that's good. It does help us to trust and depend on God to pray to him. But do you believe that God actually answers prayer that he's still working today? Well, if you don't, then don't pray. Don't pray at all. Because notice what he says. Let him ask in faith without doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Now, how much control does a wave that is in the midst of the wind have? Zero. It's driven by the wind and it cannot stop itself. It moves and it crashes. It rises and it falls. And something else is in total control. He said that's what happens when a person prays but does not believe that God will answer their prayer. They're out of control. He says, for let that man not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We ought to pray for wisdom. But here's what we need to do. We need to trust that God will give us wisdom. God answers that prayer. God does not withhold good things from his children when we seek them from him. And that is a good thing. It's a perfect gift that comes down from above. Verse 9, he says, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. He's going to dive into this a lot in chapter 2. Let the lowly brother, that is the poor brother, Glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner is the sun risen with the burning heat, than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. You know, the kingdom of God, the gospel of Christ, is meant to make all men equal. All men within that, in, in that kingdom equal. There should be no classism within God's kingdom. And if you really think about this, he says the poor man, you take Christ away, there's definitely a class here, rich and poor, right? But what happens to the poor man? The poor man who has nothing is now an heir with Christ and has an inheritance, eternal inheritance. What happens to the rich man? He takes up his cross and he is lowered and humbled by Christ to live a life now not of, of being served but of serving himself. And all of a sudden, we've got two people on an equal plane and they can both glory in it. Isn't that beautiful? Christ makes us equal. Not in a physical way, but in a spiritual way. And he says that's what we need to glory in. The lowly brother glories. The rich man glories. In what? In his humiliation. That may sound strange. The rich man needs humbling. What does the poor man need? He needs exalting. And they both get what they need from Christ, from the gospel of Christ. And he says, you know what? This, glorying in this is foolish. 
All the things that will pass away, all the things that are temporary, glorying in that and focusing in that, boasting in that. And he said, that is foolishness. All that stuff's going to end. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he received the crown of life, which the Lord had promised to those who love him. Here's another various trial that we go through. Being tempted to commit sin. And what does he say? Blessed is the man who endures temptation. Why? Because he'll receive a crown of life. That tells us a couple of things. Number one, it tells us it's a blessing to endure the trials of life. But secondly, that if we don't fight and struggle against temptation in our life and endure temptation and fight sin in our life, we will not receive the crown of life. But God promises a crown of life to those who love him. And how do we show God that we love him? By fighting against the flesh. And he says, blessed is that man who endures temptation. And then he says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt himself tempt anyone. You ever heard somebody say, man, I just feel like God's out to get me. Every time I turn around, it just seems like God is out to get me. You know, that, that's what the whole book of Job is about, is, is whether or not God is punishing Job because of some mistake that he's made. God's made my life hard. Someone looks at this and says, well, you know, God tested Abraham. Actually, the Bible does say that. It came to pass that God tested Abraham and said, Abraham, and he said, here am I. And you remember what happened after that. God said, I want you to take your son, your only son, and I want you to go and I want you to offer him on an altar. Well, well God did test someone, didn't he? So let's go back and look at the context here. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. Nor does he tempt anyone. God doesn't tempt us with evil. God may test us, but God does not tempt us to sin. There's another source of that temptation, but it's not God. And so when somebody's struggling with temptation, when they're struggling with some evil desire, they can't say, God, why are you doing this to me? God didn't do that. God doesn't tempt us to sin. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. You know, this is a very comforting verse because it tells me that my temptation is not my, just my temptation. It's not just my temptation. There are other people who struggle with a common temptation that I may have. And that's true of every one of us. You're not the first person to ever be tempted with whatever temptation is bothering you or troubling you. But notice in the middle of this, God is faithful. I love that phrase. Right in the middle of this verse, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape so that you will not have to bear it. You say, well, I don't think that's what that says, but that's how it's read a lot of times. God's going to remove the temptation so that the temptation's not there. That's not what he said at all. He said, so you may be able to bear it. You may be able. God doesn't take away the temptation. He gives us what we need to endure it. And that's why James said, blessed is the man that endures temptation. God doesn't remove the temptation, but he makes a way of escape. And he's faithful in providing a way of escape so that we can bear that temptation. And notice that God does not allow us to be tempted beyond what you're able. And I want to go back to Job for a minute. Do you remember every time that Satan came and he said, let me hurt Job? God said, all that he has is in your hand. Only don't hurt him. That was first. Well, he did a lot to Job. Killed his family, all ten of his kids. Took away all of his wealth, killed a lot of his servants. But he didn't touch Job. Why? 
Maybe he couldn't bear that and the physical ailment at that time. But later, God did allow Job's person to be hurt. And so I might say, well, that's too much. No, it wasn't. You know how we know? Because Job endured. And maybe some of you are thinking, well, I wish God didn't think so much of me. <laughs> I wish he thought I was a little weaker and didn't allow things to happen in my life that I can handle. Now, this verse does not say God doesn't give you more than you can handle. That's a, that's a pollution of this verse. There are times when we are in situations we can't handle. Paul even entered situations like that where he said, you know, within were fears. <laughs> and and, and we, it was beyond our control. It was beyond our strength. That happens. This is about temptation. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are capable of withstanding or enduring, but provides a way to escape that. So one is tempted how? Not by God, but he says one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires. His own desires. Well, here's one way we can endure temptation. We can change our desires. A lot of times that's the problem. People have an ungodly or a selfish or self-seeking, as he talked about in chapter 3, desire. And because they don't change that desire, they always struggle with the same temptation. And it's always very hot. It's always very intense. And life is very hard when you're being overcome by temptation over and over. So you can change your desire. Well, how do you do that? Well, set your, th your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. And so you start seeking after the things that are heavenly. You start seeking out after the things that are spiritual. And those desires, they become less of a presence in your life. Now, does that mean that we're going to one day find out that there's absolutely no temptation in life? Brother Bill, are you still tempted at 90 years old? Yeah. And, and, and I'm, I'm not picking on him. I think that's true of all of us. We all are going are gonna to still have temptations in life, aren't we? But you know what? The more that we focus on the kingdom, the more we give our heart to Christ, the more that we allow God to do the work in us that he wants us to do, we begin to will and to do for his good pleasure, not for our own. And those desires are a lot smaller and a lot quieter than they were before. And that helps us to endure that temptation. And so if we're going to endure temptation, we've got to recognize what our problem areas are. What is the desire that's eating my lunch? What is the one desire that seems to be feeding all of the problems and all the weaknesses that I've got? Maybe there's more than one, but we need to start somewhere and say, what is my desire? Because really, God's not tempting us, and we can blame the devil and say, well, the devil made me do it, but that's not what the Scripture teaches Satan sets the trap, but it's the desire that feeds the longing. It's the desire. And yes, there is a trap. And notice, each one is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed. And that word enticed means to be lured by bait. Lured by bait. And many times this Greek word is translated in the New Testament as beguiled or deceived. You know why? Because when you're lured by bait, you are deceived. Because it's not real, it's not bait, or it's not food, it's bait. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12 says this way, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing for the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful. Our ungodly desires are deceitful. The things that pull us away from God 
and toward the flesh. They are deceitful. They're baiting. They're luring us. They're trying to trap us. And here's the danger. If you're deceived over and over and over, if you're baited over and over and over, pretty soon you become hardened. You become calloused. Now, I'm just going to use an example that I'm familiar with, and that's deer hunting. Maybe these pictures aren't as clear back in the back, but uh, if you can just barely see the mossy oak symbol on this person's hat, there's a man in camouflage in front of this tree, and that's pretty good camo. But you know, that's one of the ways that somebody deceives an animal so that they don't, aren't alerted to their presence and they can take them down. But you know, that's probably not good enough, and this guy's got a shotgun, so he's probably hunting turkeys, but... But even deer hunters wear camo to keep themselves blending into the environment. Well, something else you can use is what's called a deer blind. Why is it called a blind? Because we want them to be blind. We don't want them to see us. And that's a good thing to, to help. Well, this is a deer call. And I wish Van was here because he's got a call like this. And he's got a story about that call. But that particular call right there is, a, is a, it's called a triple threat. And I'll tell you, that thing is great. We've called in a lot of deer with that thing. And, and, and you know what? I, I think, well, you know. How, how dumb do you have to be? <laughs> it's, not a real, it's not a real noise. It just mimics the sound, but they come in. And, and then these little rattlers right here, you can click them together. It sounds like two bucks fighting. And if there's a uh, you know, possessive buck, a, a, a one that's territorial, he'll come running in there to fight off the other bucks because he's trying to chase them off from the dough. And, and all we're doing is clicking plastic together. But it calls them in. It draws them in. This, this is actually laundry detergent that you can put on your clothes to make sure that whatever scent you have on you is not detectable. And, you know, there's all kinds of stuff. This is doe estrus. And I, I mean, there's all kinds of things you can use to deceive an animal in order to kill it. But what's missing from up here? What's the most effective way to kill a deer? Food. Give it something that it can come back to over and over and over, and it feels safe. And every time it comes back, it feels easy, and it's fulfilling. And you know, one day they come back to the feeder, and things are different, because there's somebody sitting there in a blind with a gun, and that day the deer dies. Yeah, we're not talking about deer. We're talking about us. How many times have we just been lured like an animal to the slaughter, just tricked by some subtle trap that Satan laid for us. And what started it? It was this right here. It was our heart. It was us not being vigilant. We can't blame it on the devil. We're the ones that fail. When we allow our desire, when we allow ourselves to be deceived, God's word is full. It is rich. It is rich with warnings. It is rich with, with ways to identify temptation. And if we ignore those and we keep repeating the same sins over and over, we have no one else to blame but ourselves. Because God says, if you ask for wisdom, I'll give it. If you want a way of escape, I provide it. We have no excuse. God doesn't tempt us. Put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Don't make it easy to sin. Don't make it easy to be deceived. You know, one of the other deceptions that happens is friends. Friends. Evil company corrupts good morals. You know what's entertaining? To have friends that are carefree. That's entertaining. They'll do whatever and you can just watch. And sometimes that is alluring to people. They, they are deceived by that. They think, well, I like to keep them around because they're funny. And sometimes they're not just funny, they're bad influences. 
And people say, well, I'm above the influence. I can be around those people and it has no effect on me. And I think that's why he included these first four words. Do not be deceived. That's deceiving. Choose people to associate with. Your closest relationships should be with people that don't pull you away from the truth and toward lies, away from God and toward the world. But they should be someone that helps you draw closer to God. And that's just one of the ways that Satan will deceive us and that we're trapped. Then the desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So there's some analogies here about reproduction. Desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. There's a harvest coming. When is desire conceived? Not when the temptation happens. And I think we really need to understand that. Temptation is not sin. Temptation's a danger. But temptation is not sin. Jesus was tempted. He was tested. But he didn't sin. He may have had desires. But he didn't sin. We can have desires. We can be tempted and not sin. But once that desire conceives with the temptation and we give in it gives birth to sin and sin it also has children and those children are death and so when we give in to those temptations that's the harvest that we have to look forward to is a harvest of death do not be deceived my beloved brethren that's a very simple statement isn't it i think this is sort of a conclusive statement to what he's been talking about in these first 15 verses don't be deceived. Wisdom comes from above, not from you. Trials are a blessing in life because they strengthen us and they teach us. And you need to allow them to have their work. Temptation is something you need to be aware of. Riches flee away. And if you're lowly, don't think that your status is dependent upon your status in this world. It is dependent upon God. Don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. The lesson is yours tonight. I hope there's been something that we've learned in these first few verses in the book of James. Uh, if you've been having trouble with sin in your life tonight, we want to invite you to come to Jesus Christ. Because again, the only way to overcome temptation, to endure temptation in our, in our life, is to surrender control to God. That is the means by which we fight this battle. It's not because we're strong. It's because he is strong and he is able and he is giving and he is generous. And so if you need God tonight to fight something in your life, come have a seat. Let us help you as we stand and we sing.